Some of your Bronco stuff on. Eh. Having played college football, I've actually never been to a NFL game in my entire life. That needs to happen, but the reason why I can't is because, hey, they're on Sunday mornings. What am I doing on a Sunday morning? Preaching. Hey, that's how that works. But I appreciate everybody being here, everybody um, showing up this morning because whether you know it or not, this is this is who God wants in this room today. You came here for a reason. You're here because the Lord is doing something in you. And you might hear that a lot in church. The Lord's doing something in you. The Lord's doing something in you. Just step in. Um, we're going through the book of Nehemiah now. We had a wonderful time closing up the book of Haggai and jumping into the book of Nehemiah. Now, we went through some history with this guy, understanding who this dude was, where he came from, his background, and understanding that what he was called to do what the Lord was doing in him had nothing to do with his background. It had nothing to do with where he came from. And it's something to take note of because I'm going to get to a statement here later after we kind of, you know, recap last, uh, last Sunday. I'm going to get to a statement that is, is, is apropos for today. It's from the Lord. I want you guys to hang on to it. It's going to drive this whole message. But looking at Nehemiah, we came last week from Nehemiah 6, um, 
15 and 16. I had to set some things up for you guys understanding that Nehemiah, okay, as we get into this and I speak and I talk about him, I want you guys to understand this guy and what he was called to do was to go back to Jerusalem after Jerusalem had been destroyed. This is a hundred years later and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That was his purpose. Okay. Now we went through Haggai. Took three months to get through that book. It's only two chapters. But Haggai was specific to building the temple in Jerusalem. There was three waves of exiles that came out of, three waves of Jews that came out of exile. Nehemiah was a part of that third wave. The Lord did something in him that I think is amazing because Nehemiah, if you look at who this guy is, he has no tie back to Jerusalem whatsoever except the fact that his father was buried there. So that is, that is a tie, but that's the only tie. He'd never seen Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been destroyed a hundred years before. He shows up on the scene and all of a sudden he's got this burden in his heart. For a place he's never seen, he's never been. But yet, the only connection that he has with Jerusalem is that his father's tomb is there. We opened that up last Sunday. Do we not have a heavenly father who sat in a tomb? Okay, before I say that, let me say this. The gospel is in Genesis to Revelation in every single word. It's there. You just have to kind of look for it. Some people think the gospel is only in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, it's not. (laughs) Nehemiah's heart burned for a place where his father was buried. Does your heart not burn because your father was buried, your heavenly father, in a tomb? But guess what? Nehemiah's father is still in that tomb. Ours isn't. Amen? So here's this representation of the gospel in Nehemiah. I'm not saying that it is the gospel. It's a representation of it. And the Lord is using every part of scripture to show the gospel of jesus christ then we get into the actual gospel in the new testament so you guys with me so far understanding who nehemiah is just a little bit before we we get into this now we're only looking at the first four verses nehemiah might take us a couple years to get through because we're going to preach the whole word there's no word or scripture we're going to jump over um whether it's hard or not we preach all of it here. But I appealed to you guys last week. Asking the question, I kind of already asked it. Does your heart burn for his work as Nehemiah's heart burned for a place he'd never seen? I can ask you the question, does your heart burn for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because if that's not the it, expanding the kingdom, you know what? I'm going to go to... Mr. Ned Sickle, who runs this place, this hotel. All right, brother, it's been real. We're going to pack up shop. We're going to clean up all the chairs. Thanks for giving us hot rooms and cold rooms, and we can never get the temperature right. But, you know, thanks for letting us be here. We're done. Like, if it's not about the gospel, then what are we doing? If it's not about adding to the, the adding seats to the kingdom, then what are we doing? You guys are going to hear me say that from now until they put me six feet under. That's what it's about. So everything's got to point back to the cross. Everything's got to point back to the gospel. And does your heart burn for that is my question. It's a question I put out in front of you guys. Let's read Nehemiah 1 through 4 real quick. So we can get an idea of what our text is for this morning. Um, And real quick before we do that, a lot of times people just jump right down to verses 3 and 4. 
and the fact that he got a report and then there was a burden. He was burdened. But there's something in verse 2 that I think is unbelievably important to look at. I'm going to read this and I'm going to make a a statement that I want you guys to hang on to. It says in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. While I, and he's, that's Nehemiah, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. See, uh, last week I had to open up with some, some scripture. We really didn't, excuse me, with some history. We really, we really didn't get a chance to jump into this, but now we get to. Now we get to see why this man was burdened. For a place he'd never seen or never been. Now you get through verse 1. Just kind of gives you, sets up what's going on. And then you start reading in verse 2. That Han and I, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came and I asked. I'm going to stop right there. Before I go on, I'm going to say this. That before any great work has ever been done. In the word. Moses. I mean obviously we're, we're looking at Nehemiah. You think about Joseph. Um, I mean we could go from, from person to person. Here's what the Lord does and here's my statement. He is doing a great work in Nehemiah. Before he does a great work through Nehemiah. So let me translate that and say that to you. I made an appeal to you last week to help me build this thing. I cannot do this by myself. I just can't. Okay, Nehemiah took 52 days to build a massive wall. That's ridiculous. I'm a construction management major. I understand the timeline of how long it takes to build something of that magnitude. You know how he did it? He appealed to every family and said, please, just build right in front of your wall. Excuse me, right in front of your house. Build your section of wall right outside your door. Right across the street with your neighbor, with the disciples that you're raising up, evangelizing in your social environment. Super simple. He is going to do a great work in us, in you, individually, before he does a great work through us. I appeal to you guys asking you to help me build, and it's like, oh my goodness, I'm overwhelmed. (laughs) Well, you got to understand that he's working in you right now before you even knew it. He's doing this great work in you right now at this very moment because he has a plan for you and he wants to do great work through you. He's not going to throw you out there and say, get this done for me without making sure that he's taking care of what's going on in here and what's going on up here. Amen. So when I stop at this verse, can we get verse two back up there? One and two, that that Han and I. One of my brothers and some men from Judah came and I asked. See, I believe that there's something, 
there's something there that I want to I want to bring out. Now, truck with me on this. Um, Claudia, how are you doing today? Good. Good answer, right? It's good stuff. Um, Opal, how are you? Doing well, yeah? Everyone's like, don't ask me, don't ask me, don't ask me. <laughs> Valerie, oh, good? All right. See, the Lord did something in me about eight or nine years ago. When you, you come up and you ask somebody that. What do you tell them? Do you tell them the easy answer? Or do you tell them the real answer? Because if you tell them the easy answer, it's diagnostic in the sense that I'm afraid to give them all of what's going on with me. Because if I do that, they may not want to hear it. They may not want to accept it. I might get judged for it. Whatever, whatever. So we give them the easy answer. Or we just, you know what, I don't want to talk about it. Or I don't think that you really want to listen or you deserve to hear it. There's so much I could go on about that. Do you give them the easy answer or do you give them the real answer? Now, when you give them the real answer, you gotta, you gotta, let me just say this. There's two sides to this thing. When you give them the real answer, let me finish this thought. It allows for people to hear what Christ is doing in you. Valerie was like, hey, I'm blessed. Really? Why are you blessed? Well, because God's just, man. Then what happens? If that person's not a believer, you're right into evangelism. Let me tell you about this man who has changed my life. His name's Jesus. You're in, right? The real answer presents more of the gospel than the easy answer, answer, which presents more of yourself. Now, that's, that's the person responding, right? Well, what about the person asking? When you ask that question, are you asking to satisfy the American stigma of trying to put on a face like you're unbelievably concerned about this person's life? And you're just saying, hey, how are you doing? You don't really care about the answer. You're just saying, this is what we do with small talk. So I'm just going to put this out in front of you and I could care less what comes out of your mouth. But whatever does come out, I'm just going to be like, oh, sweet, pray for you. And you're done gone right when you ask the question you got to be ready for the real answer now see what is happening in nehemiah whether he knows it or not whether you know it or not when you ask a certain question about how somebody is doing this is diagnostic in the sense that when he heard the answer something happened he may have been aware about it he may have not that the Lord had already begun a work in him before he even asked this question. Because the Lord was about to do a work through him. So here's what I'm saying with that. Sometimes we don't even know that the Lord has started a work in us until the situation comes and presents itself that will allow that work to be revealed. A lot of times you're not going to say, okay, Lord, I'm ready. <laughs> Whenever you've ever been ready for him to, I mean, just totally rip things out of your life or um, shake you to the point where the only thing that remains is that which cannot be shaken, which is the kingdom. That shaking is not fun. All right. But what I'm saying is, ladies and gentlemen, he has already started a work in us as a church. And we don't even know it yet. He has also already started a work in you. You don't even know it. But situations have presented themselves in your life to reveal the fact that you 
are ready. I'm trying to encourage you this morning that you're ready. Are you, are you guys trucking with me up until now? So I hope the next time you ask somebody, how are you doing? <laughs> you're ready for the unbelievably detailed long response. Because that's diagnostic in the sense, if I ask it and I'm not ready for that, well, where's my heart at? If I'm not ready to, to hear that, then just don't ask the question. Uh, now, don't go to work or wherever you're at and just be stone-faced cold and not talk to anybody and say, my pastor told me not to ask if I don't want to hear the answer. So I'm just dealing with that today. <laughs> so are we, are, we, are we good? Are you guys with me? See, as we as we look at Nehemiah, after all of what I had just got done saying, and we read that again, the fact that he even asked the question concerning a place that he had no tie to, he then gets an answer. And this answer, all right, is whether we know it or not, I don't know if it's what Nehemiah was expecting or not expecting. And I got to tell you this story before we, we kind of get into verse 3. And um, does everybody know who Sonny Lubick is? He's a football coach here at CSU. Great man. Really. I, I was able to play for him for three years. And then Steve Fairchild came in and played for him for two years. But Sonny is like, he's he's just a weird dude. <laughs> uh, he cares more about you as a man than he does as... Uh, then he does as uh, care more for you as a football player. But what you do on the field, he's equally interested in because if he wasn't, he would lose his job. But that's how you get athletes or, you know, that's how you coach. You let them know you care about them as a man aside from football, aside from the sport, but hold them accountable at the same time. Um, but that's not really what I'm trying to say with that. I'm just saying as I'm about to tell a funny story about Sonny Lubick, I want to build him up before I just kind of throw him under the bus. <laughs> But this man, he's got such a weird little accent. He's like, yeah, so how you doing there? And I just want to make sure that we're making first downs. And he's the type of dude who will tell a story on a Sunday after a football game. The story has nothing to do with anything. Nothing. Yeah, so we were driving down the field. We got a few first downs. It was good. It was good. And then my grandma called me. Sonny, you're on the field. Your grandma did not call you. And then he's like, at the end of the story, the moral of the story, don't eat pizza on Sunday. Like, Sonny, what are you talking about, man? That makes no sense whatsoever. I'm just trying to let you know that Sonny's just a weird dude. But Sonny, caring so much about you, um, he would always ask, how are you doing? He would always ask that. So passing him in the hallway, you'd meet this guy and he'd be like, putting his hands all over you because I think that he was trying to figure out if, hey, did you did you work out this week? Did you gain some weight? Because we need you to get, you know, just weird, dude. So you're talking and you're standing there and he's like putting his hands all over you like, what is this? This is weird. But he, he would always say, and I, this was towards the latter part of his years when he kind of, he, he got let go. He'd always say, how you doing, you know? Is there first downs in your life? How's school? And you could say anything to him. Be like, yeah, man, school's great. And that'd be the real answer. It's awesome. And be like, good, good. We just want to make sure that we're behind you and we're supporting you. This dude's like 70 years old, a little short guy. But something happened with him. I don't know what happened. To the point where you could ask Sonny. Or Sonny would ask you, hey, how are you doing? And you could say anything like my entire family, 
died in a plane crash. I have no money. Uh, I got no shoes, clothes off my back. I got to sell them. Um, and he'd be like, good, good. We just want to make sure that we're getting first downs. And it's like, Sonny, did you hear a word I just said? You didn't hear a word I just said. Because he was just in his oldness. I'm sorry for the old people in the, word, in the room. I don't mean that. Disrespectfully, Jim, please stay with me. I need you. Okay. <laughs> wow, I'm digging myself a hole. Anyway. Sonny already had his answer picked out before anything came out of his mouth. Now, he still cared about you as a man more than he did about football. I don't want to get that twisted. But sometimes he would get so caught up in what he was doing, before anything came out of his mouth, he had an answer already picked out. My question to you, if the Lord is doing something in you so that he can do something through you, when he speaks to you, do you already have an answer picked out? Have you already come to a conclusion before you even let the situation reveal itself? See, Nehemiah, had he had an answer already picked out, whatever Hen and I would have said, it wouldn't have made a difference at all. Now, my analogies are not scripture, okay? We always want to pull from scripture, but do you guys get the picture that I'm trying to paint with that? Before we even get into verse 3, if Nehemiah hadn't been in a place where he was ready to hear the answer, it would not have even mattered. That is the work that the Lord was doing in Nehemiah before he even knew it, to the point where he was at a place where he could ask. So he asks, and then he gets a response. Sorry, my notes are all over the place. Trying to make sure I'm... At the right spot. So if we're looking at verse 3 and we look at the response. They said to, to me, to Nehemiah, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. There's nothing in that verse that's like, I'm good. I'm well. I'm blessed. Not that those are bad responses. Not at all. But he got a response that wasn't something that's going to make you just, you know, drop everything and sprint to Jerusalem, whether that thing be a good thing or a bad thing. He gets this report. And then we get a chance to look at his response. Now, before I jump into that, are, are you guys with me? The importance of understanding that, are you asking for the real, excuse me, are you asking for the easy answer in your life, or are you asking for the real one? As I've appealed to you guys this, last week and today to help me build this, it's going to be tough. There's going to be times where you're not going to want to do it. <laughs> At all. And everything that looks realistic that comes up against what is going on in your life. Okay, here's the realistic view. All of that is like daunting. Verse 3, that's the real, that's the reality. That's, that's a realistic view. That's, that's exactly what is being put up in front of Nehemiah. Here, here is what is going on. Now his reaction speaks to the fact that the Lord, I'm going to keep saying it, the Lord is doing something in him so that he can do something through him. This is going to be tough sometimes, 
But you got to understand the Lord is already on your side. He's already started working. So we got through verse 3. We see his response. And then we read verse 4. It says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now that's a real, to me, that's kind of like a real Christian-y thing to do. Honestly. Like that's the that's the right answer. That's what you're supposed to do, right? See, I don't do that all the time. <laughs> my immediate reaction is not to get on my knees. It needs to be, and it, it's gotten better in, in those parts of my lives that the Lord convicts me on. But here's what we don't see. We don't see Nehemiah drop everything that he's doing and run to Jerusalem and be Mr. Fix-It. I am Mr. Fix-It to the core. <laughs> Got my degree in construction management. Just want to build stuff, all right? Pastors, you know, listen to somebody across the table. You got to listen to them. You can't just wait for them to stop talking so that you can just word vomit the word all over them. That's not how you do it. He didn't just drop everything and go fix the problem. And that's because he got a response. He got an answer in the natural of what was going on. The realistic view of that. And here's what I love about that. This is just one point in verse 4. As we read through Nehemiah, it took him four months to get to Jerusalem. Four months. That means he prayed for four months. It means he he was probably fasting. That's a long time to fast, but fasting in that time. Weeping in that time. Having his heart broken in that time. He wanted an answer directionally in the supernatural. He got an answer in the natural. We got an an understanding of what this is in the natural. But I'm going to spend time looking and listening for the voice of God in my life before I go to the situation that I know I'm called to go to. That's what I appreciate about Nehemiah. Not hearing his voice was not an option. Let me ask you this question. Are you there? Is not hearing his voice not an option to you? Or is it an option? Or is it, Lord, I'm going to jump into this and then bless it later? Is that it? I so appreciate the fact that he did stop because he wanted to hear his voice for direction, for discernment, for how to do it, for how to build a wall in 52 days. How to motivate people to do that. So you guys trucking with me on that? As we continue, there's a couple of things about verse 4. That I want to bring out. That have to do with this word burden. Because we see that Nehemiah was burdened. With something. And there's two types of burdens. Burdens can be one of two things. They can be debilitating. Or they can be enabling. A burden can be debilitating. Let's just take finances for some reason. I got mountains. Of bills on my desk. I gotta pay them. That's a burden. I can let that burden be debilitating, debilitating if I don't have the perspective of who my provider is. If I know who my provider is, that burden all of a sudden doesn't become debilitating. But when it is debilitating, guess who's at the center of it? Self. 
what did we read or go through in Haggai 1, verses 1 through 6? Um, I don't know. Do we have that on the slides or no? Yes. No, yes, we do. Sweet. Can we get that up there? Oh, there it is. Hey, come on now. 21st century, we just, hey, all right. It says, in the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. The high priest saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not yet come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be, to be rebuilt. That's what the people said. They were at the middle of their burden. And they came to the conclusion that it's not time to build the Lord's house. It's time to build my house. And I'm just going to do that because it's comfortable. Uh, verse three. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your dwell in your paneled homes? While this house lies desolate, get verse 5 up there. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider when a burden is debilitating and you're at the, the, the center of that. Self, it says, you have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing. But no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. That is a burden, ladies and gentlemen, that is debilitating. Because diagnostically, if we look at it, those people had themselves in the center of their view of what needed to happen. Building their own homes rather than building the house of God. That's how we opened up Haggai some three, four months ago. All right. So, what does it look like when a when a when a burden is enabling? We have to understand that it's not just the opposite of self, which is not self. Because here's here's how I want to explain this: that when a burden is enabling, the end result is the kingdom of God. The end result is not another person, because not self could be someone else, right? <laughs> but the when a burden is enabling, the end result is the kingdom of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which whatever you're being burdened with causes you to do something, move. Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Right before that go word, the end of verse 27, beginning of verse 20, uh, excuse me, the verse, um, what did I say, 18 and 19? End of verse 17, beginning of 18. In that little space, it doesn't say have your finances right, have your interpretation of, you know, all the gospels correct, make sure that you have enough money in the bank, whatever I already said, finances, but it doesn't doesn't list all of these things that you have to do in order to go. It just says go. Why? Because the Lord is already doing something in you so that he can put you in a situation to reveal that he wants to do something through you. Are you guys with me on that? So I'm trying to encourage you this morning. Don't get freaked out. He's already started the work. And he is burdening Nehemiah. He's breaking his heart for what breaks the Lord's. And I've kind of, the Lord has kind of done that with me. <laughs> I can't say kind of. Because you guys have been up here, been in here seeing me being a, a blubbering fool, crying my eyes out about how the Lord is breaking my heart for each one of you guys. 
each one of you guys why you're the church. The church isn't brick and mortar. The church is people. The Lord's heart breaks for his bride. If he's going to do a great work in me, if he's going to do a great work through me, he's got to do it in me first. He has to break my heart for the church of Jesus Christ for Fort Collins, Colorado. Now, if we were to take a step back from the, from, uh, how do I say it, from the kingdom and go to when it, the opposite of self is not self. Here's an example that could be looked at as not self. But if you dig deeper, it's got Christ written all over it. Marriage. Hey. I haven't had a chance to experience that yet. But in our staff meeting, I think it's kind of funny. There's six or seven of us in there. Everybody in there is married but me. And I start talking about marriage is like, oh, that's an enabling burden. And they all start laughing at me. I'm like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Don't make me feel bad. Marriage, when you take on that woman, you see that woman walking down that, that center aisle for men. Um, there's something in you that changes. There has to be. Because I've seen it. I haven't had a chance to experience it yet. But your heart goes to a place where by any means necessary, according to scripture, you will provide for that woman. You will make sure that she has everything that she needs. And then the Lord brings kids. And I'm sure, obviously, I haven't had a chance to experience that either. But guess what? You look at that child. Hold that child in your arms for the first hour that they're alive or whenever you get them back from wherever they go in the hospital and get cleaned up. (laughs) Obviously, I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Your heart breaks for that child. You're burdened. But it causes you and enables you to get into a place where you are willing to do anything and everything for that child. Now, how this connects back to the kingdom is when you have the right perspective as a father. You have the right perspective as a mother. That the Lord is working in you for your family, as a dad, as a mom, as a unit. And that communicates to the lost. It communicates to people who don't know Jesus. So there it is again. The kingdom's in the whole thing because who set up marriage? God himself. We are in a time, ladies and gentlemen, that the sanctity of marriage is being challenged every single day. For us to get at that problem, you know what we have to do? We have to be God-fearing men, God-fearing women. So that the God-fearing men can lead well, God-fearing women can be the piece to the puzzle. Uh, This is kind of how I see it. The kids come in and there's something about a mom. (laughs) Good thing my mom is in here. I'm probably going to start crying. Uh, That is the glue to an entire family. Something about a mom that she pushes that mom button all the time. And kids are kind of like, you know what, stop. Just let me be 13. Oh, my goodness. I got my own phone. I can do whatever I want. For me, it's like, I'm 30. Let me be myself. Stop it. (laughs) You can still make me food, but hey. (laughs) All of that working together was set up by the Lord. Set up by Him. And that, like I'm just going to keep saying it, is a communication 
to the, to the world of the proper working of something that the Lord has set up, which has the gospel written all over it. Are you guys trucking with me with that being an enabling burden? Nehemiah was burdened in a way that enabled him to do one thing, and that was dropped to his knees first. And in that, it took him four months. For you, it might take four hours. It takes four minutes. It may take four weeks. I don't know. Hopefully, it doesn't take four years. Four months is pushing it. But to not do that part of it, you're missing out. He's going to burden you because he's doing something in you so that he can do something through you. Get on your knees and pray about it so that you can hear him in the supernatural. So that you can hear him speak to you. That's that's my encouragement to you this morning that, hey, don't freak out about this. The, the Lord's got it. He's going to tell you what to do. But don't miss out on the fact that he's already started the work in you based on what's going on in your life. So when the situation presents itself that you can finally step in to the revealing of what he's trying to do through you, don't let that freak you out. Just step in. He will take care of the rest. It doesn't need to be all this. Let's check that off. You guys trucking with me on that? Run into this podium as I'm backing up here. So where else in the word do we see this enabling burden? Talked about it outside of scripture. Talked about marriage, even though marriage is in scripture. If you look at Moses in Exodus 3 and 4, this is the burning bush incident, not incident, but interaction with God and Moses. And then Moses calls, God calls Moses to do something. And Moses brings up every excuse in the book as to why he cannot do it. I don't speak well, eloquence, eloquence of whatever. Um, how are they going to believe me when that comes out? Like, why me? And through a series of comments to Moses, what the Lord does is he takes him from himself to Jesus. Well, to God. Because Jesus wasn't around at that point. He was, but not in the flesh. He takes him from thinking about, I'm so unequipped, to, yes, you are unequipped, but I'm going to do it through you. And then he brings Aaron alongside of him, which, guess what? I'm asking you guys to come alongside of me. To help me build this deal. To build this wall. And then what happened? He brought people out of bondage. But here's a man who the Lord had to do something in him before he did it through him. So this morning, what we're going to do, get the the worship team back up here and let's prepare for our offering. First of all, does all of that, does all of that make sense? Amen? Amen? Okay, and if it doesn't, you know, get on my schedule, we can talk about it. Because I want it to. I don't want to just be up here saying stuff to be saying it. Ask because you want to know. And then be prepared for the answer. Because we ask things from the Lord, sometimes we're not prepared for the answer. or prepared for when he gives it to us. But he's giving it to us according to where we are in the sense that he sees us fit to be able to handle it. Is it the easy answer or the real answer? Because when the real answer comes, points back to the cross. Amen? 
Let's get this uh, offering up here. You guys can come up here. But here's here's what I want to do this morning. I know that the Spirit is here. I know that God is in the room. I'm going to pray for this offering. Then we're going to jump into this. If you guys want to stand to your end, you know, you can just you can stay seated for a second. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, we thank you for this offering, Heavenly Father. We know that we use this money for your work. But Lord, from Genesis to Revelation, we see your gospel, we see your characteristics, we see all of you. Lord, you talk about giving, and it has nothing to do with money in the word. It has nothing to do with money. But there is a place that you say, test me in this. Give me what's mine, and I'll give you everything you've ever dreamed or asked for. So Lord, as we give today, I pray that we give with just a joyful heart. A heart that wants to give, the, the amount doesn't even matter, doesn't even matter. But Lord, giving with a joyful heart, a grateful heart is what you're looking at. So as this plate goes by, bring the joy of the Lord so we can use his resources, your resources to reach this city. In Jesus' name, go ahead and pass that. But maybe the Lord wants to do something with you this morning as, as far as this work. Maybe you, you, you haven't really understood that. There's a, there's a work that's being done in you right now. And what did Nehemiah do? He got on his knees and he prayed. He fasted. We're going to have a time here in a little bit where you're going to have a chance to do that. And it ha- it's not going to be this, nobody's going to embarrass you. Let me just say that. But if you're at a place in your life where you know the Lord is moving and you need direction, the front is for you. I'm going to be up there praying for anybody and everybody who wants to come up. Because maybe here's, here's, here, let's stand to our feet as we.